0: You're listening to Java with Jen with your host, Jenilee Samuel. Hey friend, it's a good day to have Java with Jen. I'm so glad to see you. I'm excited for today's episode because... We're going to speak to the pain point that a lot of people have reached out on Facebook about, actually. I've had a lot of people send private messages saying, Hey, I don't even know even how to position myself as a Christian in these times that we're facing. I believe in God, but I don't know how to make an impact on the people around me when everyone is so divided and people are so offended. Do I speak up? Do I not speak up? Do I get on Facebook? Do I keep my opinions to myself? All the things. And so my husband just did this beautiful job the other night. If you haven't heard him, he's a phenomenal teacher. And he just published a book called A Reason for Hope. It's on Amazon. And this message kind of pulls from chapter 9 in his book where he is talking about how to keep the main thing the main thing even when we are in a climate that's so divided. Now, in the recording, they actually cut off the first couple of minutes, so I'm going to catch you up after this little intro music thing and then hang tight for the life hacks at the end because I share with you what I've been doing to grow long luscious eyelashes for about a third of the cost of more expensive um, serums and stuff that I've invested into in the past and so this is a great life hack way more affordable to get you some beautiful eyelashes so we cover all the things today clearly share this with a friend and we'll jump into the episode right now thanks for coming We're in a time in history in which many of us, pretty much all of us, have not seen in our lifetime. We are a nation that has become quite divided. And those that we're trying to reach with the gospel will fall into one of three categories. They may be ambivalent to what's going on, don't really care. If it doesn't affect them directly, they don't want to know about it. They're unknowingly or knowingly just averse to what's going on they don't want to know. The second group is the agitated and those are the ones that are so much in the middle of it but they're in the middle of it in a way that's irritated and um, contentious and divisive and argumentative. They don't like your opinion and they're always opposed to your way of thinking. And then you have the agreeable.
1: And they're they're what we like to call our friends and family, people that agree with us, right? Now, in all three of those groups, listen, there's lost people. All three of those groups have lost people in them. And they're not, when they close their eyes in this realm, they're not opening their eyes in, in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And I don't care which group they're in, you and I have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to reach them. Now think about this for a moment. The people that you probably disagree with the most, the ambivalent, the agitated, that's where the fish are. They're not in this group that is just agreeable with you. The lost that you're trying to win are the enemies of the cross. And it takes some great wisdom to win your enemy to the Lord Jesus without trying to win them over to your political side or your lifestyle side. That's why the Bible says, whoever wins souls has to be wise. And I'm telling you, it's not a manipulation game. It's an all-in game. If you're going to determine to, I'm going to bring people to Jesus this year in 2021, now more than ever, you need your wits about you you need your prayer life about you. You need to be in the word, of the word of the Lord. You need to know how to hear God's voice. You need to learn how to operate in the giftings God's given you. And this is not the you build your ministry show anymore. This is you build the kingdom show. And if you're not building the kingdom and you're building your kingdom, not being accusative of anybody. But what's going to happen is it's going to fall into one of these three groups and you're going to find your effectiveness among the lost diminishes right? And I want to show you just the text of scripture that Jesus speaks to his disciples when he commissions them out. It comes out of Matthew chapter 10. But I want to talk to you about how you can effectively engage the lost as a follower of Jesus. And I don't mean just getting a bunch of people saved. Let me be very clear about this. When I say engage the lost, I don't mean you go out to Walmart, walk around, give somebody a prophetic word, pray with them a little prayer, and man, my job is done. Here's the problem that we as the church are recognizing across the world is that we don't know how to disciple people. We don't know how to take them from, I believe in Jesus, I prayed this prayer, to I know how to lead someone else to following Jesus. And listen, there's no shortcuts for discipleship. At best, three years. At best, three years for the eager beavers, maybe two years, where you take someone for they know nothing about Jesus and they sit, not just in church services, but listen, at your house, at your dinner table, and there's discussions and you're talking to them about finances and marriage and kids and life and job and time management, financial balance, all that stuff. You're teaching them that because you learned it from the word of God. And you know what I found in my short 42 something years and following Jesus, here's what I found. Most people don't teach because they don't know. We're kind of on the crash course as maybe the second or third or fourth generation from what used to be a very solid theonomous culture. Theonomous culture is a culture that's ruled by precedents that God gave to that people group, right? We see that in Israel. You even see a theonomous culture in like Islam. They are ruled by a belief system in a God. Right? We used to be like that in the US. And we can lament over that and reminisce about it, but the truth is, we're in a very autonomous culture. Everybody is their own set of morality. What you feel is right for you, it's right for you, and what I'm right for me. The problem with that is, eventually, quickly, all those rights are gonna collide and somebody's gotta be wrong. Right? And because we've migrated in a few generations from the 60s, if you will, from a theonomous culture that Businesses were closed on Sunday, and alcohol was looked at as a bad thing, and smoking was looked at as a bad thing, and those sins, those vices that corrupted families were looked at as wicked, to now they're celebrated and entertaining to families. When was the last time you watched a sitcom that didn't have adultery in it? It's hard. I mean, last one I can think of is Andy Griffith. You know what I'm saying? I've watched a lot of Andy Griffith in my life. Me and Barney, we're tight. You know what I'm saying? Here's what I'm saying. We're not in the same place we were even 12 months ago. Right? Things have changed, and you'd have to be completely oblivious to what's really happening in the world to not agree. And we all agree. But even with all the change, listen, there's nothing new under the sun, There's nothing new in the the tenets and the deception and the forces of light, the forces of darkness that are working to destroy a culture, right? Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, and the text is pretty lengthy, so I'm not going to read through the whole thing. But he's talking to the disciples, and if you read a little bit uh, before chapter 9, he goes to the mountain to pray, and when he comes down from the mountain, He begins to select his disciples. He selects 12 of them. Now listen, he selected those disciples. They didn't just show up and, hey, can I join your club? He went out and selected those disciples. And after he selected those disciples, there's a span of time. It wasn't like, hey, follow me, and then next day I'm sending you out. There was a span of time between that selection of disciples, and then him began to teaching them, commissioning them, and then sending them out, right? We don't know how long. I would guess somewhere between the tune of four to six months before, between choosing and sending, right? And so in Matthew chapter 10, let's start verse 5 there It says the 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor food I'm sorry, nor nor bags for your journey, nor tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city you enter, city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, your peace will come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Whoever you... whoever. I'm sorry, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day than for the day day of judgment, than for that city, excuse me. Watch what he says here and we'll close with this verse. Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Let's just play a little imagination game. You get a bunch of sheep and you send them out in a pack of wolves. What do you think happens? The sheep revolt? They win the day? No. When he says, I send you out among sh- as sheep among wolves, listen, this is the scenario we are entering in our culture. I'm not talking eschatology, I'm not talking end times. I'm just saying we're in this place. We're devout followers of Jesus are sheep among wolves. And he gives us a solution of how to endure. Watch this. He switches the analogy. Because the first analogy, the sheep is the victim and the wolf is the predator, right? But then he says, this is how you do it. Therefore, be wise as a serpent and harmless as doves. You ever seen a snake bird fight? The birds usually don't win. But he's saying, listen, this is the situation you're given. You're sheep among wolves. But you can move in wisdom like serpents, but yet be innocent as a dove. And the attributes that he speaks to are very commonly understood attributes in those days and even in our days, right? Commonly understood. And how do you move into this place of being wise as a serpent and yet innocent as a dove? That's kind of what I want to focus on tonight, key ways that you can operate in this. Number one, uh, or number three, if you're following around in your notes, there are keys which we can utilize to continue the work that we have been given, to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. And this is just things I feel like the Lord put on my heart as I was reading this text that we read. And I would strongly encourage you to go home and read this text for yourself. Number one, you must start going. When Jesus called the disciples, he didn't say, wait, he said, go. And listen, even the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, when he says go, he's not saying just to go make disciples. He's saying, actually the text in the Greek reads, as you are going, and what is he talking about going to? As you are going about your day, as you're going to work, as you're going to pick up the kids, as you're going to dinner, as you're going to restaurants, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. A lot of times we think disciple-making and going is something only for mission trips and exclusive days that we pick throughout the week. Saturdays, we're going to go on an evangelistic event. I'm not against that, but I'm just saying you should be doing that as you are going, making disciples. Because here's the truth. You see the same 30 to 60 people every week again and again and again and again. And there's a good chance the majority of those people aren't in love with Jesus. And notice I didn't use the word saved because that's such a fuzzy term now. Everybody in Southeast Texas is saved. Everybody. I remember when, when I was a youth pastor, we had a ministry down at, at the corner of uh, 7th and Liberty or 8th and Liberty in downtown Port Arthur. Every drunk I spoke to was saved. They even had scriptures they could quote me. Everyone, every prostitute we encountered, every, every drug user, they were all saved. So we got to throw that qualifier out the window As you are going, we are to do what? Make disciples. And let's define what a disciple is. Not a churchgoer. Someone who is aggressively following the teachings of Jesus. We're not talking eternal security cards. We're talking aggressively following the teachings of Jesus. Let me give you a great book recommendation that I just finished up. A book called The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. And he talks about what it looks like for someone to follow the life of Jesus. Dallas Willard's a phenomenal writer, wrote some incredible books. The first book that, he, that I read of him was Divine Conspiracy, which you should read. It's an incredible book, repackaging the gospel. But the one I'm telling you about is called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And he talks about the life that Jesus lived and the disciplines that he had that every believer in the New Testament church, all the way up to about 300 AD, these lifestyle disciplines that everybody had, disciplines of solitude, fasting, praying, reading the word, vows of poverty. And I'm not talking about poverty like it's a good thing, but vows to not become obsessed with materialism. And he talked about these disciplines and it literally drove the early church. So when we talk about following Jesus as a disciple, we're talking about following what he did, not just what he said. How did the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 know how to go, cast out demons, lay hands on the sick, cleanse the lepers, because they saw Jesus do it. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him do it. And listen, the disciples that you make, if they don't see you do it, no matter how much you tell them how to do it, they won't do it. You can teach them all day about giving to the Lord of your time, energy, and finances, but if they don't see you doing it, it's not just gonna happen. Well, God will just have to reveal it to them. No, God is using the church to reveal his will to the world. That's how this setup goes. And so if I as a church don't model for people how to live for him, and I'm not saying I've got to be perfect because that's one of the traps we fall into. Well, let me get my life all together, and then I can really disciple some people. That day will happen the day after you die when you feel like you got it together, right? So you start now. You disciple people through your struggles, right? Right? especially if you got kids, then you can really expose all the struggles you have, right? Invite some people over, watch it happen. You know what I'm saying? Disciple people through your struggles. All the parents are laughing because it's happened. Keys right now in our time that you need to grab grab a hold of in this disciple-making process. Number one, the fear of sickness and disease. That is one thing that's going to try to immobilize you today in 2021 to from stepping out and going and making disciples and let me let me just be really honest okay let's talk about the COVID elephant real quick I've had numerous friends die so I'm not up here acting like you know oh you got to be a man of faith and nobody's ever going to get sick I've had numerous friends die I was at a funeral uh, last week and I'll be at a funeral this week of friends of mine who've got COVID and it mutated into pneumonia and such and such and they went through the problem and they died. But death is not something we fear as followers of Jesus. Because if we've done our discipleship work well, we're letting them go in this life. We know this story. is for a life to come. Right? You know, the easiest funerals to do as a pastor is someone who's lived a long life of following Jesus. The hardest ones are when you don't know. Right? And so we have to remove that fear of sickness and disease. Stand in the authority of God's word concerning your healing and move with wisdom and courage. Sickness is real and the emotional impact of sickness plus isolation plus fear is a fatal weapon of the enemy. And that's where I think the enemy is using now. Not just sickness and disease, but sickness and disease plus isolation plus fear and people literally losing their mind in a 14-day span of craziness. It's bad enough. Listen, I'm a big whiny baby when I'm sick. Ask my wife, right? I milk it for everything I can get, right? (laughs) Listen, some people have vacations. I just get sick and at least two weeks out of the year, you know what I'm saying? But here's the deal. We have to stop being afraid of sickness and disease. I can tell you before, and I had COVID uh, about two weeks before Christmas, right? Two weeks before Christmas. But before that, I remember so many times going and talking with people, praying with people who were sick and as, when I left them, I could feel the symptoms coming on and I'd have to just say, no, I'm not gonna let that happen. And stand in authority and rebuke that thing and fight against it, sure enough, it would pull off. And that happened like three or four times before I got sick. Is it a battle? Absolutely. You know why? Because all sickness comes from the devil. All sickness comes from the devil, right? But the Bible says For this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the wicked one. And then it says in Acts that Jesus went about healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Notice, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So every person that Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil, right? We know sickness doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy, and we've been given that authority. Am I saying you'll never get sick? I'm saying even in sickness, you can live victorious because death, hell, and the grave have been brought to the feet of Jesus. When you get sick, believe God for healing. And you keep fighting for healing until when? Till you're healed or till you see Jesus. That's what we have to come to, right? The other thing that will try to immobilize, immobilize us or trap us in an active Christian life, nostalgia. And this is a fun one. Oh, do you remember before COVID? Do you remember before? And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, uh, when things will get back to normal, then I'll start ministering as I once did. When things get back to normal, then I'm gonna start inviting people back to my house. When things get back to normal, then I'm gonna start going to, you know, tell people about Jesus and praying for the sick. But when it gets back to normal, Stephen, and here's the problem with that we may never go back. It may never go back to normal. At least never go back to a normal where you feel comfortable enough. Because listen, once the fear gets planted in, only faith can get it out. You know what I'm saying? Waiting for the tormentor to stop is not going to happen, right? Nostalgia will lead you to complacency. Now listen, there's good old times we sit around and we talk about, you know, you remember when this, and, and we have good memories. Nothing wrong with good memories. But don't let good memories give you pause to be nostalgic to the place of, Complacency, And there's still people, listen, we talk about it all the time. Pastor uh, Kevin and I have talked about it, and other pastors, you know, there's some people, they've been out of church now for months, almost a year. And listen, they're not healthy emotionally, spiritually, some of them even physically. And not because God's punishing them or anything. It's just when you're out of community, it hurts, like what Pastor Kevin was sharing earlier. And so nostalgia will immobilize you. Fear of sickness and disease will immobilize you. The last thing, escapism. Well, I'm just gonna hold on until Jesus comes and rescues me from all this stuff, right? And listen, I grew up in that mindset. You know, things are just gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus is gonna come save the day. Do you know that was not the belief system of eschatology until about 1900? According to church history, all the early church fathers, all the way through the medieval times, all the way through the dark ages, all the way up to 1900, the belief was that the church would one day get so strong that it would take over the world and then Jesus would come because the spirit and the bride would say, come Lord Jesus. We have so many people redeemed, sanctified, where governments are underneath the rule and the reign, a theonomous culture once again, and then we are ready for Jesus to come back and we have done the work. This gospel of the kingdom would be preached in all the world and then the end would come. That was the belief up until about 1900. And then, I don't have time to go into the history of it and name all the names of people who've promoted that idea. But then the idea of cessationism and guys like Darby and those guys stepped in and they basically had this idea that the world was going to get worse and worse and worse because the Holy Spirit is gone. The gifts are gone and all the Pentecostal movements are dead and it's just going to get worse from here. And then finally one day Jesus is going to show up and save the day. There's no pattern of that in the scriptures in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. The pattern that we see even in New Testament church history was there was 120 believers at the, after Christ died and rose again and 50 days later at the day of Pentecost. Do you remember they started out at 500 and they got down to 120? And that 120, right, yeah. they were waiting in the upper room. When they were released from the upper room, in about 40 years, that 120 got so extensive in their disciple-making ability that Paul writes at the end of Romans, there is no place that I can go where the gospel is not preached. So he had tapped out because he was limited by his language capacity. He only spoke Greek and Hebrew, and he had to stop. No place I can go where the gospel is not preached. And then about 300 AD, it happened. The gospel prolifically reached, I'm sorry, 400 AD, reached so much of the known world that it became the religion of the Roman Empire, right? And then Christianity became a political machine and went downhill from there, Right? But it was always believed, even St. Augustine's City, City of God, the book was about Rome being the pinnacle of the church because they believed the church would eventually take over the world. That was the victorious view that they had. The blessed hope was that the king would finally come to his throne in Jerusalem because the church had subjected all things under his feet. And I'm in some of your theology. It's okay. Take it down, Pastor Kevin, when I'm gone escapism right it it puts us in a place of Im- immobile evangelism we don't do anything we're just waiting to get out right and i'll just put you a little tidbit I'll put a nugget in there if you think or if you feel i should say tired all the time because you're ministering and ministering listen i can tell you probably what the problem is you don't have a sabbath in your life if you're not resting one day a week you're going to burn out at about week 3 you know what I'm saying? So if you don't have Sabbath in your life, a time for, to get refreshed, to enjoy life, to spend time with your family, to pull away from your ministry stuff, then you're gonna get burned out. And the grace of God will carry you for a while, but then you'll start hating doing ministry. And it's because you're not taking a Sabbath. That's how God worked in one day a week vacation for you. And you have to guard that thing. Okay, keep moving with me. How did Jesus direct his disciples? You all still with me? When he called them. First, he defined the people in the place to reach them. I'm sorry, people in place for them to reach. Let us see how we're doing on time here. He defined it. Notice here in this passage of Matthew chapter 10, he says to them, go to what? The lost house of Israel. Now, every one of you, believe it or not, um, every one of you guys, God has called you for a specific people group. Whether that be, God wants you to minister to children, to youth, to adults, men's, women's, or maybe it's based on you want to, you're supposed to be ministering to families, people in financial trouble, medical trouble, whatever the group of people that God's called you to reach. And I wouldn't just confine it just to that, but I'm saying there's some passion in your heart that drives you to reach a certain type of people, business owners, mechanics, doctors, lawyers, whatever, the people that you surrounded yourself. And I don't have to be, it doesn't have to be defined in a concise, you know, this is all I'm going to do. But I'm just saying, there's a passion in your heart. You like to do this, and the people associated with this, God's put into your hands, right? Listen, as much as we'd like to think you're called to reach the whole world, you're called to reach your world. And if you'll take care of your world, the whole world will be reached. Jesus reached the Jew. He came for the Jews that lived, you know, Jesus didn't travel more than 30 miles from where he was born for his whole life. Take a little pin drop, put it in Bethlehem. You draw 30 miles out, you can draw a big circle, and that's as far as he went. But he reached that region. In fact, by the time the, the early church gets started, the number one accusation that the Pharisees and the Sadducees come, and says, you have fulfilled, you have filled all of Jerusalem with this doctrine. They nailed it, right? By the time, the reason they killed Jesus is because he had overturned that whole region to believe what the message he had about the kingdom. You have a specific calling. And listen, if you don't know what that specific is, people to reach, find the biggest need and go there. What's the biggest need in this church? Start there. Right? Well, we don't have nursery workers because they're always bailing out. There's the biggest need. Start there. Well, Stephen, they're kids. I can't stand kids. Change your thinking (laughs) because you're not changing the kids by avoiding them. Well, Stephen, I don't feel called to that. You're called. Listen, find the biggest need. And here's the problem. A lot of times we want God to hand us a platform when he hands us a towel. And here's the problem with that. And I get it. Some people are not called to children's ministry. You know, I get that. But here's the deal. You'll never know what you're called to until you try out where the calling could be. You're just not going to find it. It's not gonna, you're not going to have a dream and a prophetic word. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people waiting on that, and they wait for years Years. Some of the most influential people in my life spoke into my life before I was a 10th grader. You know what I'm saying? Before I was 15 or 16 years old, the most influential people in my life. Who I'm still friends with to this day. But listen, at that time and even now, the culture is we hate kids. You know, I want a career away from kids. I want to get, Listen, that's where it's needed the most. Because what we abandon, the enemy is definitely taking, right? If we're not talking to those kids, you know, over at Community, we have a school and a daycare. Man, I love walking through the school, walking through the daycare, talking to those kids, building a sense of you can trust leaders in the church again, right? Okay, I'm going to move on. I'm going to get lost here. Okay. Define the place. Next thing, he trained them in communicating and discipling others, the truths of the gospel. Notice when Jesus gives them a directive and says, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to cast out demons, do this, do this. He trained them in how to do that. They watched him for three and a half years. Roughly, the most of the miracles were about a year and a half to two years of Jesus' ministry. But he trained them how to do it. Um. Here's the things that Jesus warned them. Number one, he said, cast aside the concerns of an unbalanced self-preservation. A lot of times we get this idea, I'm going to follow Jesus and really give myself to this once I get a house paid for, my car paid for, get a financial stability, get a college money, and I get all these things financially ready for my life, and then I can really go out on a limb and serve Jesus. Listen, that day will never come, or when it does come, you'll have too many other priorities. Right? The other thing Jesus op- spoke to them was to operate in peace. He says, when you go to a town, let your peace remain with you. If you start voyaging out into ministry and you don't sense the peace of God leading you anymore, then you pull back and ask, what's going on, Lord? But here's what i found. Many times we mistake the peace of God for just the affirmation of our emotions. You need to know the peace of God. And listen, the peace of God comes by being in the word and God speaking to you by under, being under godly leadership and have leaders speak into your life. And then also the emotions that you have in your heart, not just the emotions isolated by themselves. You need the voice of the Father to give you peace as you're doing the work of the ministry. Okay, if you get rejected, which is gonna happen, guess what? Move on. Like, there's some people that are not gonna wanna be discipled. It's okay. Move to the next one that wants to be discipled. Don't let social media undermine your work as a minister of the gospel. Don't let it, because that's one of the tactics the enemy is using right now, where people that you have long-time relationship with all of a sudden are offended because you said something, did something, and now it's an explosion, right? Now listen, I'm not saying you should be sheepish about your beliefs and just hide, you know, but what I'm saying is be wise in what you do. I'll share a little story about that here in a little bit, um, I'm going to tell you a little story, and, and then we'll transition here to the last part, and we'll be wrapped up here. I think when I was a kid, and maybe something, you know, the Lord just in his wisdom worked out. Um, when I was a kid, and, and y'all can kind of understand this, when, when we have kids' functions here at the church, you know, we have little plays and productions, you know, and uh, the ones that we talk about are like how to witness to each other, you know, so you have kids kind of mimic that out and play that out. We have ones where they like to turn away from drugs and alcohol, and we have plays about Christmas, we have plays about Easter, but when we are talk about real-life practical plays, we usually, social, you know, peer pressure, we talk about that. You know what I'm with? Well, I was born in India, and the plays were much different among kids over there, and it registered in my thinking. Uh, the last time I was in Africa, we went to a little Orphanage, and they were like, "Oh, the kids want to put on a play for you." And of course, they're translating through uh, Hausa, the the common language, and, or French, is what the kids are speaking. And so the play was this, you know. Now I'm not trying to cry. So the play was this: there was a, a little family, you know, a husband, wife, and some kids, and they were in a living room. And there was a loud beating at the door, and these men came in, and they put a gun to the head of all the kids, and the mom and dad had to say yes to Jesus, and the kids were killed. That's the place I grew up with. When they come for you, we practiced how to say yes to Jesus. It's such a shift because we've never seen persecution. But I was born in persecution. We knew what not to say in public. We knew what not to do in public. We knew what kind of pins not to wear on the lapels because although it wasn't overt intense persecution you just knew how to be wise as a serpent you were trained not to share the gospel with everybody but to listen for the voice of the spirit and make disciples for those who had need from those who had needs and i'm telling you that to say we're in a place where jesus is looking at the disciples in the scriptures and he's giving them the same direction that he's giving us the climate is very hostile And you need to prepare yourself. Everybody say, oh, I'll be a martyr for Jesus. That's the easy part. It's the dying daily to self that's the hard part. It's the I'm willing to give of my time, my money, my energies to reach the lost every day. Dying for Jesus is easy. Living for him is the hard part. It really is. Paul said, I die daily. Which means what? Putting down my selfish desires, putting down my agendas and saying, God, I'm gonna follow you. What are some basic ways that you can do it? And I know I'm over my 30 minutes. I'm so sorry. Consistent prayer. And let me tell you, this little tool, I'm on the last page, point A, consistent prayer. And this little tool is powerful. And I say it's little, it's not little at all. But it comes from the book Contagious Discipleship by a friend of mine named Paul Watson. Paul Watson. Paul Watson shared this strategy that his father taught him, Paul, and his brother, David. Paul Watson's dad was a missionary among the Budjpuri Indians for uh, some 10 years, 20 years, something like that. And for the first five years, I believe he says in the book, you can read it, his number one prayer to God was this, God, get me out of (laughs) here. Because the Budjpuri Indians were the most obstinate, resistant to the gospel people that he'd ever encountered. And so after five years of just fighting the will of God as a missionary with no converts, no whatever, then the Lord Jesus came to Mr. Watson and said, I'm gonna give you a strategy. And he said, I want you to pick five people. I think the Lord gave him more, but he picked five. He said, I want you to pray for those five people, one person a day, all day long. And you can take off the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, but one person a day for five days. One different person every day, you know what I'm saying? And he started doing this strategy. And so he said, Lord, who are these five people? And the Lord began to speak to him of key people that were all Hindus. The Bajapuris were all Hindus or animists. Uh, he gave him four men and one woman. One, the woman lived like two and a half hours from him. And the Lord spoke to her in a vision to come and find him so he could disciple her. So he, from those five people, every day he would spend... Throughout his day, as he was going to work, to, to, to feed, to take care of his facilities and all the stuff that he did as a missionary, he would constantly be praying for that one person all day long. Now, they didn't have text messages, emails, no way to communicate, but he would just pray for them all day long. And then when he met with them, because sometimes he had to walk to their village, he'd have to go spend time with them, he would tell them the things the Lord shared with them. And then he opened the scriptures with them, sat down and read the word with them. Five people. It took him about a year to disciple five Five people. But what he didn't realize was happening is he was training them how to make disciples. First year, those five people began to disciple another five to 10, 15 people. In 10 years, Mr. Watson planted 80,000 churches on this simple strategy. In fact, the missions organization that sent him said, you're lying, it's not the truth. So they sent out the missions team and they checked out all the churches that he had planted, he was lying. It was closer to like 120,000 churches that he had planted. Out of the simple strategy of praying for one lost person the same day of the week, week after week after week after week. I know some of you are thinking, it cannot be that simple. I'm telling you, it is that simple. Here's the catch. Consistent, persistent prayer. Because after four months, here's what happens. Oh, nothing's happening. I'm going to Netflix it tonight, right? Listen, I started doing this uh, August-ish of last year, and I had a group of 30 people that I prayed for every month. Every first of the month, I'd text the same person, hey, I'm praying for you today. What can I pray for, for you about? It's amazing how many of those people right now, every, every day of the month, are praying for 30 people. I'm amazed, and the stories, I I can't even keep up with them anymore. But people coming to find Jesus, hearing the voice of God, the text message that they send, this is what I needed to hear today. And listen, I picked 30 people who, some of them were Christians, quote unquote, but they weren't living for Jesus. And so here's my challenge to you. Why don't you start this? There's 38 something people in this room. If every one of you prayed for one person a day, and that same person, the same day of the month, every month, Do you think heaven would not respond to that? You don't have to compare lists, but just start praying. I know there's going to be some overlap, but start praying for one person. Here's what I do is I'm praying for that one person all day long. Sometimes, sometimes, not every time, God will give me something to share with them. And I'll shoot them a text. Hey, I was praying for you today. And I felt like, I don't say God said, I just said I felt like blah, 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 blah. Because most of them are not believers. And I'm amazed at how their heart will get softened. (laughs) There's one guy I'm still working on. He's one of our neighbors. His name's Terry. Terry, I love him to death. He's an elderly black man. He works at the refinery as an operator. He's got all gold teeth. I love it, like solid gold teeth. And he's got a really thick accent. You know what I'm saying? Like, he calls me preacher. Every time I say, hey, preacher. And uh, anytime something's wrong at Terry's house, like his water pump or his swimming pool, he calls me, Preacher, Preacher, can, can I need you help? And then, of course, my wife is First Lady, right? First Lady, <laughs> how you doing, First Lady? <laughs> Terry is as lost as a goose. Lost as a goose. And I've been praying for Terry for six months. Every, whatever day of the month it is, I text Terry. Terry, praying for you today. You and Miss Pat, what can I pray for you for? Every time he responds, preacher, pray for me. Pray for my kids. It's touching his heart. Listen, it may take me another year and a half, but I'm going to get through. And he's going to hear the gospel. My whole neighborhood is on my list. Every neighbor. I'm walking up and down. Every neighbor, I should say that God said, hey, that's the one. I'm praying for them. They're all. Most of them lost. But I'm praying for them. Listen, I'm not telling you miracle stories happen every day. They take time. But I'm telling you, I would challenge you, make a list of 30 people and pray for one person a day all day long. At the red light, while you're waiting at the doctor's office, when you're at the grocery store. You bring that person, and you begin to pray. Some of you guys, were spirit-filled people, right? Pray in tongues for them, right? And you might be amazed to see God start moving in their life Because you're praying. There's a young man who I graduated high school with. His name's Corey. And he came into my life about two, three years ago. And, you know, his life was a wreck and went through counseling. But I started praying for Corey six months ago. And then after texting him two months, three months, he finally texted me back. And he said, hey, listen, I need to talk to you. Came to my house and just unloaded all this crap, all this stuff that's going on in his life. His wife was about to leave him. His kids were all rebellious. His finances were tanking. He was about to lose his job. I mean, like the worst, best country song ever, you know what I'm saying? And I remember sitting on my back porch with Corey. We had a cup of coffee. It was a nice evening. And I just looked at him and said, Corey, he'd been raised in the church. Both of his parents are believers, raised in the church. I said, Corey, you need to start following Jesus. That's the problem. He said, what do you mean I'm not saved? I said, no, I'm not saying that. I don't know. I'm just telling you, you need to start following Jesus. Corey didn't talk to me for a month. <laughs> I texted him that next month, "Hey, I'm praying for you." And man, something in his heart just switched. And from that day, he said, "Stephen, I think the Lord is telling me." About slapped myself in the head when he said it. I think God's telling me to start spending more time with Him. So he decided. If from the first time he, moment he woke up, he was no longer going to grab his iPhone and check his Instagram and Facebook, but he was going to read a proverb a day. In 30 days, this boy's life transformed because he chose to read the Bible when he rolled out of bed. You know how many hours we've preached that from the pulpit? You know what I'm saying? Corey and I started walking through the book of Mark together, one chapter at a time, one week at a time. As he's reading the Gospel of Mark, it seemed like the first time he'd ever, he's like, Did Jesus really do all this stuff? Yes, he did. Corey got sick, went to the hospital, had to have surgery. And in the middle of, before surgery, he calls me and says, Listen, I believe in Jesus for this healing. Went through the surgery, comes out, and then he calls me and says, Why didn't Jesus heal me? I said, Corey, I don't know. But he did get you through the surgery. Maybe he's trying to teach you has goodness in spite of the attack of the enemy. He hangs up the phone with me. The nurse walks in and says, hey, listen, for some reason we have a lot of extra money and you don't owe us any money for a pretty extensive surgery. Corey got on the phone screaming, yelling, hollering at me like, this is amazing. Jesus is, I feel like, and it's just the story goes on. And then he lost his job and then he began to trust God for his finances and then God got him a better job. Then his marriage is doing much better. His communication with the kid is growing. He's back in church. But listen, it took almost a year. I just every 16th of the month, text Corey Williams, hey, I'm praying for you. Listen, it works. Here's what it takes time. It takes time. As you're doing this, invite other people to pray with you. Now, I don't share names with them until I get permission from them to share names. But I have a group of people that I text. It's called the Discipleship Making, Making Movement. And it's a Facebook group. And I'll say, hey, pray for Jay. Pray for this person, that person. And now I have... 50 people praying for this one person at one moment. I've got a prayer team behind me. Listen, there's a great prayer team right here. You could build a little network and everybody be praying for the lost. If we don't pray for the lost, you are foolish to think that you're going to have the right words at the right time to trick them into following Jesus. Because that's not evangelism. That's a trick. And they'll figure it out. Right? No man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And so we have to start praying for the lost to come in. Take time to talk with people. I've got two more stories and I'll finish this up. Take time to talk with people. I'm always in a hurry. I'm late most of the places I go. Just ask my wife. I'm always in a hurry, right? Because our clocks demand that we be places all the time. But here's what I found. I have to stop and take time to talk to people. I'm by nature very introverted. My idea of a good time is Starbucks coffee and a book and no people. That's really what I love to do, right? But even personality, because a lot of people like to blame their personality for when they feel they want to be a little disobedient to the gospel, right? I know, we'll pray for your toes later. But just because you're not an extrovert doesn't mean you're not supposed to be an evangelist. Jesus didn't just select the... Two-thirds of his disciples say, okay, you guys go. You guys just stay home and keep writing, okay? <laughs> he didn't do that. All of them were evangelists, right? Uh, I, was, I was in a rush the other day, and on my way to uh, church, I, I was going to swing by Starbucks. I usually don't go to Starbucks because we have a nice little coffee machine at the house that I like to use. But I got a gift card for Christmas, and so I was going to go to Starbucks, and, you know, splurge a little bit because, you know, I'm an Indian. Anyway, so <laughs> I go to Starbucks. I pull in there. I ordered my a mobile app, you know, thing online. And as I walk in, I'm waiting there. You know, everybody's standing around because you can't sit there. I'm standing around, and the barista guy's working on this, and him and, and another barista, which I know that the, my – the, the other one he's talking to, because she's been there forever, is Hannah. He's talking to Hannah, and he said something. And I'm trying to remember what he said, but I can't remember. But it was just one of those philosophical statements like, oh, everybody's this and everybody's that. And the world's going to heck and blah, blah, blah. He didn't say heck. And, but, and, uh, and so I just, I looked at him. I said, hey, is, uh, will you really think that? And he was like, oh, yeah, man, the world's just, a, there's no hope in this place. I said, no, there, there's really some hope, you know. And it kind of perked him up. You know, of course, he couldn't see all this facial expressions, had a big old mask on and everything. And he looked at me and says, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I kind of wrote a book about it. You want it? <laughs> and he's like, you did? You wrote a book. He said, let me find it. So he pulls out his phone. He's looking it up on Amazon. And I said, here's the deal. Inside of all of us, there's a desire to do what's right. And that comes from God there's a righteous nature that people are born with, an identity that they want to find. They're not righteous by, by nature, but they want to be righteous. And man, he was just looking at me like, what? I said, yeah, dude. And so he said, I'm going to get the book. I'm going to read it. So that was, one, that was two, three weeks ago. And so I left and I thought, you know, a couple of days later, I'm praying for him in my morning time. Like, and I remember his name. It, says, it starts with a J. I said, God. And the Lord was like, you need to go back and talk to him again. So I show up the next a week later. It's the same Monday. Show up. And I'm in a rush to get to work. I've got to be at work at a certain time. I've got things, drop the kids off. I'm in a rush. But I say, you know what? I'm going to take time this morning, move things around, and talk to him. So I pull up, go in there, and say, hey, man, did you ever get that book? Oh, man. He says, man, I'm broke. And then he starts off. He says, man, you're a dad, right? And I said, yeah, I'm a dad. And he says, if, if you as a dad, and he starts giving me this whole scenario of conflict between him and his dad i mean, like, he's making coffee. There's people all around listening. You know what I'm saying? We're having a good old conversation. And I said, man, I don't know about your dad. I'm sure he's a great guy, but I feel like me as a dad, this is what I would do. I would want my kids, and he was talking about, should he tell his dad his financial problems? I said, I would want my kids to come and tell me their problems. Even if I couldn't help them, I would want to know how to help them. And man, he, was, he just had a great heart-to-heart conversation. So I said, did you ever get that book? He's like, no. And so the Holy Spirit was like, Go get a book for him. And so I ran to my truck, grabbed my book, and I ran inside. I said, hey, man, I want you to read this and tell me what you think. Dude, he started crying. He said, man, I wanted to get your book, but I didn't have $15. I was like, it's okay. You don't have to pay me for this. You can just take it and read it. He got so excited. He he put the coffee down, ran to the back, and put the book away. He's like, huh? Listen, people want to get touched, and we got to take time to talk to them. Put on a mask if you got to, wear a headband, put on a boot, whatever you got to do, talk to them. You know what I'm saying? They want to be reached. If you don't slow down, you're passing up people that are going to hell. That's all I'm telling you. You're passing them up. The last thing, don't make issues out of negotiables. Don't make issues out of negotiables. And what do I mean by that? Especially, specifically, social media. It's the last story I'm going to tell you when I'm done. I was on Facebook the other day and I posted, somebody posted a pro-life whatever thing and I just put it back up, you know, shared it, whatever. So many billion, millions of babies aborted and we're worried about dying of COVID, you know, kind of things. It's just simple, kind of silly, but whatever. And this young man jumped on, who I know, who's used to be in my youth group many years ago. And he made a comment, it was very, very harsh, crude comment to the tune of, you know, some babies deserve to die kind of thing buddy, everybody let him have it, you know what I'm saying? Like all my Christian friends. And this kid's not a believer, you know, straight up not a believer. And so I sat down and I took the time to go through and he said, listen, God killed all these people in the Old Testament. How are we any different killing all these babies? So I sat down and I began to write up an explanation of what it means to take innocent life. Not justifying or defending but just this is what God did in the Old Testament. This is the nature of who God is, and that's why it doesn't look like this. Anyway, you can go read the blog or whatever. And I sent him that message, you know, and I put it publicly, but I also shot him a private message. I said, hey man, I would love to talk to you about this. Now, this young man, his father's passed away. His father died of cancer. His father was a good friend of mine. He's a pastor. And he shoots me a message back, and he says, man, thank you for taking the time to explain this to me. He said, one day, I want to be able to go see my dad and I don't know how to get there. Can we talk? It would have been so easy just to blow up and leave him another. People need you to slow down. Think about what you're saying because the weight of your words have an eternal impact. That's why Jesus says every word that men shall speak they will give an account for. Your words, your time, your energy. Listen, it can make an impact or you can live a trivial life. I'm gonna leave you with this. You need a place, a priority in your life of reaching the lost. As God is speaking to you, you have to have an outlet What feeds you has to feed people around you. And if you don't have a way of doing that, and I don't care what the excuse is, and I'm not saying I don't care as I'm insensitive, I'm just saying there's not a reasonable cause to say I'm going to isolate myself from doing the work that God's put on my shoulder because of X, Y, Z. There's not one. Are we in hostile times? Absolutely. Are we in a place where the enemy is taken full advantage of dividing and separating, even within the church, absolutely. But listen, you don't have to play that game. You don't have to play that game. You can stay focused on this great commission that we have to go and make disciples. The most fulfilling feeling in your life as a follower of Jesus, the most fulfilling, I'm telling you, is when you make a disciple who knows how to make a disciple and they can follow Jesus without you because you've trained them how to follow the master. It's the most fulfilling in your life. In this group of 38 people, if every one of you made one disciple a year, and the next year you and those disciples made one disciple the next year, it would only take seven years to hit the population of winning. Of disciples. I mean, focusing on one person all year long. It would only take seven years. It'd be 4,864 people would be discipled in seven years. It's very simple to do, not easy. Simple to do. And there's tools that I wish I had time to pour into you to give, but I, I pointed out a book to you. Contagious discipleship. A Paul Watson, Dallas Willards, the Spirit of the Disciples. Here's the deal. You have to create avenues to learn how to make disciples. Big part of that is church. Being here, when God gives you a word, it's not just for you. It's for everybody you're ministering to. You got to start praying for the lost. One person a day. 30 days out of the month. And then do it again the next month. And then do it again. And then do it again. And here's what I do. It's really simple. When I'm praying for that person that morning, I text them. I'm praying for you they'll text me back in need. Sometimes they don't text back. But when they text me back in need, I text them back to prayer. Lord, I pray. Click, 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 click. And many times it starts a conversation. And then a conversation leads to coffee at Starbucks. And coffee at Starbucks leads to relationship. And relationship leads to Jesus. I'm telling you guys, now more than ever, there's grace. The lost are so hungry. Let's stop. And you're not here because you're the excuse-making kind. You're here because you're looking for a, a roadmap. How do I start this? It has to start with prayer. It has to start with an active, I'm going to start engaging the lost today. Listen, don't do, the, don't do just the fly-by-night things. Well, I'm going to walk around Walmart and look for a disciple. No, you're already seeing them every day. The teller at the bank, the cashier at the grocery store, the barista at the coffee shop, the coworker that doesn't know Jesus, you know what you do? You just start praying for them. That's all it starts with. You just start praying. Success specifically, poignantly, actively praying for them. And you might be amazed that God has been waiting for you to just start. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness tonight. Thank you for your goodness tonight to show us, Lord, just as you're showing around the world, tools and strategies for your children to actively engage and to reach the lost. Lord, I pray, God, forgive us for waiting for revival to break out and powerful speakers to come and moves of the Spirit to happen. We've looked to those as subsidies to the work that you've given us, substitutes. And tonight, we feel the mantle, the weight of responsibility to reach the lost. And Lord, I pray that you would give us tonight, Father, a heart to receive this word, just as you spoke it to the disciples 2,000 years ago. Lord, that we would heal the sick, cast out demons, cleanse the livers, raise the dead, Make disciples because we've freely been given these things. We will learn to freely give them. Lord, I pray for your peace and your presence. Even tonight, God, as we've been sharing, you've put images of families, faces who need to be reached in our community, in our circle. Stir our heart with compassion for you, for them. Stir our heart with compassion for them. Move us out of complacency into a place of fearless, active disciple-making. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
0: Okay, so for today's life hack, this is super simple. But I had used, um, my eyelashes had gotten really short and i was very frustrated over it and so i was like lord what is going on turns out my body my thyroid was struggling i actually needed some iodine in my system and so i started taking iodine which actually just helped rebalance my hormones so that my lashes could grow and my hair could grow Um, but i had done a whole tube of lash boost by Rodan and fields which in the past has been miraculous on the growth of my lashes well, I did a whole tube while I my thyroid was struggling and no growth, zero growth. And I was like, what the heck? So I started taking the iodine. Well, then I also began to take or use castor oil. I just dropped some castor oil into the tube from Rodan and Fields that I had been using that was empty and started applying that to my lash line. It makes your lashes really strong and thick and sturdy. Um, and then I started using this serum called Babe Lash, which I got on Amazon. Now I've been using it for about 6 weeks, and a friend of mine just messaged me this morning and she was like, "Okay, yesterday I didn't mean to be looking so deeply into your eyes, but they were mesmerizing." <laughs> she was like, "Your lashes were so baboom and I just I couldn't stop looking. What mascara are you using?" And so I told her about these serums and stuff I've been using and then I told her about my mascara, but Anyways, I wanted to share that as like, a, um, save your money tip because now Rodan and Fields Lash Boost is awesome. It's 150 bucks. If you want to make the splurge or ask for it for a gift or whatever, it is great. Just make sure that your hormones are in a good, healthy place. Um, because if they're not, I'd hate for you to spend that much money it and not work on you. Um, but, uh, If you don't want to spend that much, then I really recommend getting castor oil. It's under $10 Um, and then just putting it in like a tube where there's like a little brush applicator that you can put swipe along your lash line and then you could also get the Babe Lash from Amazon. If you just use castor oil, you'll see some thickening and some growth. I don't think it'll be as much as if you use it with the serum, but I've been using the serum now for like six weeks or so. And suddenly the momentum has caught up and my lashes are like, my mascara is getting up in my eyebrow line because my lashes are so long. So it's totally great. And there's your hack. The baby lash is like around $30 for a small tube and, um, using it with castor oil really helps it go further as well. And so way more affordable option. Um, and your lashes will thank you for it. So there you go. That's your life hack for today. Check it out on Amazon, Babe Lash. I really should have like a, uh, like a, one of those links that I can give you guys so I actually get credit for referring y'all. I wonder if I can figure that out. Anyways, make sure you're following me on Instagram. I do post tips like this frequently in my stories and sometimes on my posts. And otherwise, would you share the podcast with friends? I'd really love to grow. Um, In the community here at Java with Jen. I'd love to grow our audience listener base and just get, get a further reach and reach more people around the world. And so would you share this with like three friends? Just think of three friends, you know, that might be encouraged by today's episode. Send it to them and encourage them to subscribe to the podcast and dig into some of my past episodes. There's quite a few to choose from now. So anyways, I love you guys. Thank you so much for your support and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. For those of you who've rated or shared this podcast on social media, thank you. Reading your comments and reviews always means so much to me. Listen, let's stay connected. Come follow me on Instagram at Java with Jen, where you can follow the latest and say, hey, it's a really great way to stay in touch. Many of you have also asked how you can support the show. You can make donations through the Anchor app or on Patreon, or of course, by sharing, rating, and reviewing on social media and iTunes as well. Thank you to each of you for your ongoing support. Your heartfelt feedback always reminds me why I do this. Until next time, remember, you've got this and God's got you.